When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will that go among so many? Jesus said, make the people sit down. There were plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were landing. Thank you, Rebecca, for reading that. Um, it's good to have this opportunity. Isn't it great to open up God's word and to listen to him? And let's bow our heads and ask him to speak to us and let there be no, not even any waste at all. So, loving Father, we come before you as needy children. We need to hear you speak to us. Father, we come and we pray that our hearts would be open to what you're going to say to us today. That we would feed well on the food that is set before us. That we would drink from the living water. And that, Father, we would be able to say, it was good to be amongst God's people. It was good to hear your voice today. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. My name's John. Um, it's, uh, I endorse what uh, David said. It's great to have so many people here, and there'll be some people online as well. Welcome to everyone. We're in the middle of a series going through John. Uh, we started it uh, last year, and now we're looking at uh, the fourth and the fifth sign. So that tells you there's been three other ones already. Uh, the first one was turning water into wine at the wedding feast, uh, showing Jesus was the bridegroom that had been predicted. The second one was the healing at distance, the first healing at distance of an official son uh, showing his authority to heal and linking faith with that healing. Then the third was the healing on the Sabbath, which 
according to the Pharisees who had defined what work was and what it wasn't, um, that was wrong, so wrong. But Jesus said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath and therefore I can define what is work and what is not. Now all these signs and the whole of John's Gospel has one aim and John points it out right towards the end that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah that's come and that in believing in him it would bring life. It won't be just a belief, a new belief system but it's a belief system that brings life. What we have before us is uh, well known. I, I should think everyone's heard of this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. Whether or not uh, your first time here and not even a believer, you will have heard of this one. In fact, in the village where we were working way back in 1990, uh, they had a, this was before, in fact, interestingly enough, before the New Testament was printed and it started to change people's view. But they used to believe that there were two types of magic. There was black magic and white magic. So, as a good anthropologist, you ask, what, give us an indication of what black magic is. Well, black magic is something you fear. Uh, what about good uh, white magic? So, oh, we've got a wonderful ex example. Um, we, there was this feast, and the host was really worried there wasn't going to be enough food. Now in this culture, if there's not enough food, not only is there no Tesco's down the road, but it brings great shame. Great shame on them. So this person, this host, decided to call in the good magician, or the white magician as they called them, etc. And he did whatever he was supposed to do. And they said, it was just like the feeding of the 5,000. And I thought, hmm, it falls rather short of it, it really. So it was nothing like the feeding of the 5,000, but they very much knew about it and equated it with it. So in the first four verses, and do open your Bibles and uh, follow along with me, John sets the physical scene precisely. Where? He tells us that it happened on the east coast of the Sea of Galilee. They've gone over there by boat, probably in the north, and there was uh, some hillsides there, uh, nowadays called Monday, sorry, nowadays uh, Golan, Golan Heights. Now you've got 5,000 people to speak to. And we say 100 odd here. I need audio to be able to reach you. 5,000 people. How do you reach 5,000 people with a voice? Well, thankfully you've got a mountainside, lush grass, and the, so they sit down and your voice can project over all of them. So it's a good vantage point. Who are the audience? Well, the initial people were just the disciples, and then things kind of got out of hand. So just the disciples, and then suddenly this crowd of people comes along. And so what was Jesus' intention? Well, it was merely to teach the disciples. That was the initial intention. He sits down, which signifies he's going to be teaching, and end of walking wherever they are, and now it's time to listen to what I have to teach you. And when did it happen? It happened when the Passover was near. Well, to us that just seems just you know, rather incidental. But it feeds into the story very powerfully. Because when, with the Passover, nationalistic views were coursing people's veins. This is when they remember that God saved them as a people. They were his people. And now they were under the 
Roman Empire, and it really grated against them. They wanted to be free. And at this time, it was when they really thought about the fact that they were oppressed. And if you remember, this is when it happened when Jesus was crucified. And the groundswell of a strong sentiment was so evident then, and Pilate certainly felt it. So we've got the setting for the impossible. It's all set. So then we see this large crowd coming towards them because we're told they've seen signs and miraculous signs of healing, wanting more of the same. Please. Once again, the problem is they want his power. They don't want the person. They're not interested in the person, just the power. Now, like all good Christian meetings, there's going to be food, right? So I ought to just, once again, plug. There's food after this, and it's free likewise, just like it was here. But I can assure you there was an awful lot of effort went into that food, and it's going to be good to eat as well. So, strange, isn't it? So you've got this crowd coming towards you, and I think Jesus' response is rather strange. So he turns to Philip and says, where shall we get the bread for these people to eat? Really strange question, isn't it? We can only assume it's getting towards mealtime, but I could, I'd love to have seen Philip's face. It wants to be one of those jaw-dropping moments. <coughs> where? Where will we, will we get this feet? Now, Philip's answer is rather strange. He doesn't answer it. He probably thinks, well, maybe Jesus... It doesn't really mean that because that's quite clear. We're on a hillside. I mean, there's no village in sight. And even if there was, to feed 5,000 people, how many bakeries would you need, etc.? So it must be about money. So everything always ends up at money, doesn't it? So he says, even if there was somewhere, eight-month wages would not be enough for everyone to even have a bite. So to feed this number of people, there were three impossibilities to overcome. There was nowhere to buy the food. No one's gonna ha- nowhere is going to have enough to supply it. And there's no money. And John tells us that this is a test for Philip, and for the rest, I'm sure, since Jesus already knew what he was going to do. It was a test. Do you trust Jesus? Do you trust him? And will you follow what he's saying? Or will you kick back and say, nah, just impossible. So, we have a test before us. How is this test going to be? How is Jesus going to put them to the test? Well, to finish off the coffin of impossibility, a few more nails are added by Andrew. Here are these five small barley loaves and two small fish. Basically, how can they do anything? It's a drop in the ocean. It's enough for one person. He only bought enough for himself. He wasn't thinking, I'm going to feed 5,000 people on that. But he does bring it. That's the important thing. He didn't think, well, I saw a boy with five barley loaves and a couple of fish or whatever. No point in mentioning that. He brings them. And so the scene is set for the miracle. We know the rest. They sit down and Jesus took the loaves and fishes gave thanks and started to distribute the food by the disciples to over 5,000 people. There's more than plenty, isn't it? So there he's saying, what is this amongst 5,000 people? The answer is, it's more than enough in the hands of Jesus. He kept on, he kept on. There could have been 10,000 people there. There could have been 100,000 people there. And he could have still supplied it. He only stopped when everybody had had 
their fill. And then to reinforce it, the disciples are asked to collect it. Good old recycling still happened, started there, obviously. To 12, with 12 baskets. The baskets were, came, uh, were picked up and everything was filled. Now, we're not told what the disciples think. It's really interesting, you know. They have seen it firsthand. They've gone through this test. What are they thinking? What are they thinking? But what we do know is the crowd's response. And once again, doesn't it seem strange? They say, Jesus is the promised prophet. Now the jump to us seems a bit of a quantum leap, but not to them. You see, because Moses had promised way back in Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18, that another prophet like him would come. And so they're putting the, the spots together, the, the jump. They're thinking, right, God provided through Moses manna, bread like wafers made with honey in the wilderness back in Exodus. Right, so he provided that. What else did Moses do? Well, just as David said, he set them free from the Egyptians who had, got, who had made them slaves. Right, so this is going to happen again. And who do we have? Who's oppressing us? The Roman army. We need a king. So given the strong nationalistic elements in, the, in their thinking, this is what they're going to want to do. So, but Jesus, knowing that, realizing this was what they wanted to do, moves away. So we've had the impossible, we've had the miracle, and we've had the possible, sorry. We've had the impossible, the miracle, and the possible. So this was a real possibility, you see, what was happening on there. This was a real possibility that they could have made him king on that. But Jesus wasn't interested in becoming an earthly king. We could have the slides up. So he's interested in becoming a king for sinners. Thankfully for us. So he, re he goes up the mountainside <coughs> and the crowd are dismissed. It's probably a bit before dark. So there's one here who is greater than Moses who merely gave the instructions to collect the manna outside the camp, which was also a test. Do you believe that God can produce food from nowhere in the early morning? If you don't pick it up, then it's going to disappear. And so they did go out, the Israelites did. But he does something even more. He actually creates the food from one and makes it feed 5,000 people. He is God. So the next section carries on soon after that, on the same day. So it's a very contracted form. There are uh, fuller descriptions in the other two, um, two Gospels. So the disciples, as, as you, he'd gone up the mountain, the disciples are still below. They've gone to the shore, waiting for Jesus, waiting for Jesus. But he doesn't come. So... They think, right, it's time to get going. And so they're going back west. Now it was getting dark. Now notice John says that twice. He refers to that and John often uses it, if you like, in a metaphorical sense, in opposition to light. So it was dark. 
Jesus wasn't with them. Those two are being connected on that. So, they went across a bay in dark. Now, I'll cross that. Now, I know what that's like. Uh, so, <coughs> I once tried to do that. Uh, I went to the shore, and it was dark, and I needed to get across early morning, uh, by the early morning, and so I went up to the people who would row me across, and uh, you know, I said, how much? And none of them wanted to take me across. That was the first clue. So in the end, after much bartering, I managed to get them. I've got a 15 to 20 pound kilo backpack on me. We get into this canoe without riggers, and it's got an awning. So I'm sitting there underneath this awning. We start off rowing. Halfway across, it gets very choppy. Water's starting to come into the boat. It's dark, 20 kilos on the back. I won't be able to get it off if this boat goes down. And then I start to think, yes, I remember this, and started to pray very strongly. The Lord would get us there on that. But I knew what it was like to be out in choppy water in the sea. So we have the probable here uh, for the disciples. They have got a struggle. They're going against a wind. It's some seven to eight miles against that wind. So we've had the probable, and now we're on to the impossible. It's about 3 a.m., so they've been rowing a fair length of time. The point of no return, as I know so well. You're just looking for the end. You're looking for the end of the white caps, as you call it, and it's dark, and you're just longing to be on that side. Somehow, Jesus has got to the other side. So he's got to the west side. He was on the east side. He was up a mountain side. They set off, and somehow, he gets ahead of them on that. And he sees their struggles and goes back to meet them. Now, they're afraid. Who wouldn't be? I would have been very happy to see somebody walking in the water towards me, to be quite honest, on that night. But not for them. But on hearing a voice which says, don't be afraid, obviously recognizing Jesus' voice. And also, I don't believe, even if you do have a, a belief system in ghosts, etc., that ghosts are not renowned for saying, don't be afraid. That's their MOU, isn't it? To make you afraid. So they're saying, don't be afraid, really help them. And so we have the acceptance then. They're convinced that it's Jesus. So they take him into the boat, and immediately they reach their destination. Halfway, after however many hours, Jesus gets in the boat, and they're there. It's another example of his, him being God. So what does this add? Jesus knew this was going to happen. What does this add to the previous incident? Well, the disciples, the last thing they'd heard from the crowd, he is the prophet. And so therefore, that's ringing in their minds. They haven't yet clocked who he truly is. And God's speaks and Jesus speaks to them through this incident. You see, because Moses may have parted the sea, and that was with God's hand, etc., but here is somebody who walked on the water. Could you imagine if all the Israelites had walked on the water that day and got across? That would have been rather good, but it wouldn't have been God's judgment on the Egyptians, of course. So Jesus is saying, don't believe I'm the prophet. I am something much bigger than the prophet. I can walk on water. 
I am God. Well, at first glance, how can we apply this? How can we apply this onto ourselves on that? To be quite honest, I'm, even though I'm going away and going to meet up with some people in uh, another country, I'm not expecting 5,000 people. I'm not expecting to have to feed them. I'm not planning to walk across any water or go across uh, in a boat or anything like that. So how does this help us? How does this help us to be distinctive Christians? And before I go on, if you want to know more of what this passage is talking about, and David's already offered it, please do come and talk to us. We'd love to spend time explaining about Jesus. So what happens when we're faced with the impossible? Well, when we're faced with the impossible, we are to give our resources. You see, perhaps you're already thinking, well, yeah, no, that's true. But remember, we're talking about Jesus who already has done the impossible. Yeah? Every single believer here knows God has done the, or Jesus has done the impossible, right? The communion, it reminds us of the impossibility of us being cleansed from all our sins. Reminds us that we are part of him. The impossibility of being part of God coming into us and God being in us and God working through us. These are impossibilities. It is already done that. So that is the impossibility, us being born again. So whatever we are facing, whatever God is putting in our way and saying, this is what I want you to do, and your response is, it's impossible. <laughs> Doesn't like that piece of wood there. Don't despair. That's the first thing. Don't despair and say, this is beyond me. You're right. It is beyond me. I don't have enough resources. You know you do not have enough resources. But if you put them into the hands of Jesus, you don't know what he can do on that. Don't despise the day of small things. Commit them into his hands. Give them into his hands. Offer yourself in service and wait upon him and see what he can do. Isn't that a relevant thing? We're trying to reach this neighborhood and we think that's impossible. We think it's impossible to get people to come in here, for people to come and be saved. Yes? Yet it's just this neighborhood. Jesus with 11 disciples said, go out into the world and make disciples of Israel the world with 11 but the key thing was he said I am with you and when Jesus is in the boat then it becomes possible nations have been reached the gospel has gone throughout the world. There are still many people that need to hear. There's daily impossibilities are happening.
Hopefully that isn't an impossibility. It's going to work now. So, on that. So, the impossible. Right? I can tell you the impossibility in those who listened to our uh, presentation uh, in November. It seemed an impossibility, right? 107 verses translated in seven years, and there's 8,000. So that's 80 times seven years, 560 years. I know I'm old, but I'm going to get nowhere near that. If it had been 1,000 verses, it still would have been 56 years. And yet, I stand before you and say, God did the impossible. With the meager same resources, we didn't get 20, 100 people to help us do the translation. We did it with three people and myself and Lois. The same as before. What changed? God worked mightily. But with the same meager uh, resources, we gave them and did not turn around. It was a test. What God had called us to, would he be able to finish it? And people rightly said, when we were at that stage, looking at 100 verses in seven years, when there was a possibility to go a different direction, they said, John, you've given it your best. Go elsewhere. You and Lois, do something else. And we said, no. We believe that God would do the impossible, and he has. And now we're 30% into the Old Testament. And then look at the resources, right? Have you never had the thought, surely it'd be much easier with angels? Yeah? Send angels. They're so obedient. They do it so well. Whatever you tell them to do, they do it. They're perfect. It's wonderful. Send angels. No, we're not going to send angels. That's too easy. That's too easy. No, I'm going to want to bring glory to my name and I want to draw you in to feel part of me and my mission. I want you to enjoy the blessing of reaching out and seeing people. Haven't we seen that when suddenly the lights go on and suddenly somebody becomes a Christian? It's wonderful. It's uplifting. When you see God working, it's wonderfully, it's so wonderful. Yeah, an angel could go down and say, you need to become a Christian, and you need it, and et cetera, et cetera. And the person, whoa, all right. But no. We would just sit back and say, oh, God's good, God's good. But we've got the God who does the impossible. He uses us, and his desire is to use us, imperfections and all, to bring glory to his name, and for us to receive great blessings that are not our due. So the possible. What do we do with the possible that comes our way? We need to be wary to commit. This is another growth area. See, you need to know how to handle the possibles. Let me give you uh, a, p a picture just a hypothetical one. What happens if you're offered promotion? Well, hey, been working hard, doing well, offered a promotion. Thanks. Oh, that's, that sounds really good. Oh, didn't we not mention, sorry, you need to come in and work until 9 o'clock at night. Um, we've got a really big push, and hopefully after that it'll be finished, etc. on that. Of course, it'll mean less time with your family and... I hear you're a Christian, so you'll probably have to stop going to church for a while, you know, because Sunday we've got, we've got lots of deadlines happening on Sunday, and 
you know, and things like that. But, you know, it'll only be for a time. It's a tough choice, isn't it, on the face of it? Well, I know of one person who declined promotion on those grounds. See, because it was going to attack the growth of him as a Christian, you see. It would grow his bank balance. So be wary to commit. Maybe the Lord is leading that way. So what do you do? How do you make that decision? Well, you go to him and you pray. You read his word and you look at godly counsel. He's given us those three things. And if all three of those are actually pointing the same direction, then you can go with it. And that's what God did to us as well, did for us. We were at that stage where, as I say, we were looking which way to go. And we prayed. And God opened up to his word to us. And then the, the elders here gave us the thumbs up. At first they didn't because it looked impossible. But after prayer, they said yes. And that's the way, that's the biblical way to do it. Right, probable. What do we do with the probable? That's the final area of growth. That's probably more applicable to us. So, picture yourself a bit like the disciples, right? They're going across the bay, etc. They can do it. Notice how they didn't cry out to Jesus. They weren't sinking. It was just hard work. And they were only halfway across. That's, isn't that life for us? It's a struggle. But we're hanging in there. We're using our resources as much as we can. Hanging on by our fingernails, as we call it, etc. You see, the people, those disciples that night, didn't need Jesus who could walk on the water. They needed Jesus in the boat. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, you can believe in Jesus walking in the water, but is Jesus in the boat as you're going through those struggles? Have you cried out to him and asked him to help you? Have you sought his help? Have you laid those plans before him lightly? So if they don't work out, then you can still see God's outcome. If you hold on to your plans and you're struggling it through it, if it doesn't work out, you're so disappointed and you can't see God's better plan. You see, Jesus won't force his way into the boat. He had to be, had to be invited in. He's not going to barge into your life. He's there, walking on that water towards you. You need him in the boat. Don't let him pass by. Ask him into your boat. Focus on Jesus, and then you will find those burdens grow lighter. He said to me, he said, didn't he? Come to me, all those are, are burdened and heavy with a weight, etc. And I have a light burden, and I will carry them for you. So everything, basically, is a way of growing, is it not? If you're facing the impossible... If you're facing the possible, if you're facing the probable, we need God. We need Jesus. We need Jesus in our lives. And if you're not a believer yet, and you want to know more about this person, who can come into your life and can make a huge difference, can change the direction, 
can help you through the impossible, the probable, the possible, who can come into your lives and make a difference, then do ask David or myself or anybody else that you know to be a Christian. So as we close, we're going to be singing a, a final song. And it's, what a gift of grace is Jesus. Not I, but Jesus Christ in me. And the, the thrust of this is, there is none like Jesus. He is our hope. He's the one who makes the difference. The one who was able to feed 5,000 and walk on water. But he's also the one that can come into our lives and give us hope and take us through life and be there at the end. So if we're able, please stand and let's sing together.